Hello, everyone. Welcome to our podcast. We are so delighted to have a special guest with us today, and that is Kim Bathell, who's from Relationship Matters in Canada. Exactly. I forget. (laughs) Uh, Kim (laughs) is an esteemed OT and friend of all of us. And we have um, had the pleasure of having Kim in Australia and in our clinic. And uh, we did some treating alongside of Kim, which was again a real career highlight. So we are very honoured. We also thought that she's brave and creative and very progressive and she would be the ideal candidate to jump on and have a chat with us on our podcast as our very first guest. So we're very honoured that you're trusting us today, Kim, as we uh, yeah, trial how four yeah. talkative people and very passionate OTs are going to navigate the podcast. <laughs> so thank Just quickly, you as our beautiful spirited conversations people that join us in this conversation and listen you are getting an insight into Michelle and my uh I want to say OT upbringing yeah (laughs) like the minds that have like supported and helped Michelle and I thrive in the way that we think and um, the deepness that we like to go into in these conversations. And um, I am just so delighted that people get uh, to join us in this because it's just like we get it personally in our own kind of lives and the the chance to talk to these wonderful women. Um, but, yeah, well, like let's hope that you guys can see some of this process and um, be involved in it. So, yes. Sorry, I just had to add that in there, Michelle. Yeah, yeah, yes. Kim, welcome. Yeah. Thank you, thank you. Um, interoceptively, I'm like jumping out of my skin. <laughs> I feel all of the excitement in my chest. My energy just went up. Um, I can feel a little bit of the hair on the back of my neck. Um, my stomach is excited. And I feel like, this is dreamy to have the opportunity to be in conversation with these three people that I just adore. So thank you very much for having me here. And uh, I look forward to what, what we're going to create together. Yeah. Beautiful. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a joy to have you here and such an honor, but I think that it is like a reflection of the way that occupational therapists, especially in pediatrics, support each other and come together to learn in community. And so what what a gift to be able to share this. And I think that each of us are kind of, you know, having that like rush of just excitement. And also it's like very ooey gooey for me right now. I'm feeling so, uh, and uh, you know, Kim, you and I have gotten to know each other better over the last few years. And you spent some very generous time where you were in Colorado this last year for something that you were immersed in, but you were so kind and generous to spend extra time on your own and to allow 
us to spend some time just one-on-one -on -one together. And it really, this year has been kind of an anchor moment for me in a year of a lot of upheaval. And so mm -hmm. I think that the reflection of community and coming together and finding passion and joy in learning is such an anchor, but it's also like a reflection of, um, how the relationships that we form with each other sustain us as we grow, sustain us as we look forward to each of our own journeys and paths. And I'm saying a lot here that is just sort of coming from my heart to you, Kim, but I think Corey and Michelle, we've shared, you know, really a lot of intimate learning moments. And we do know that this spirited conversations community kind of resonates around that, that this community of learning that is global really is intimate. And so we're going to talk about intimate feelings, but we're also <laughs> going to talk about it from a more, you know, therapeutic perspective and neuroscience perspective. So I'm eager to jump into that and I'll stop being gushy. <laughs> but anyway, welcome we him and uh, thanks. <laughs> well, I think gushy is good because when we think about spirited conversations, one of the things that the three of you do is create a safe learning environment. And in that safety, I've been thinking a lot about safety lately and thinking that safety is not enough, actually. That it's more about the sense of love, the sense of loving what we do um, and really stepping into the deep willingness to connect with each other from a place of love, which actually just exponentially expands one's own capacity to take in new information and, mm -hmm. and evolve as an individual. So I feel grateful for the safety that you create for your community. Very cool. I have about a gazillion questions. So um, I'm not sure which one. <laughs> I think you always do, Corey. I think you always do. When we're, when we're together, I just take a deep breath and think, okay, what's she going to ask now? Not even I know. Hold on. Here she comes. <laughs> I'm getting ready. I'm getting um, ready. But yep. let me allow some space for somebody else to talk. Um, did you have anything specific, Michelle or Tracy? Corey, ask about yeah. a book. You genuinely asked about what books Kim was reading. Is that yeah, helpful, okay. Kim? Yes. I mean, I think one of the reasons that I am deeply connected to this conversation right now is that I have been tasked with this writing of a chapter for the Childhood Trauma and Dissociation textbook. And so I have been eat, sleeping, and breathing dissociation. And, you know, for, for those who don't use that word uh, in their everyday language, my perception of it is a sense of disembodiment and disconnection from oneself in their consciousness and in their being. And to me, it is a disruption of interoception and can happen for so many different reasons. And as I was writing this chapter on 
trauma specifically, of course, uh, the other half of my brain is thinking about all of the children that we support whose brains are wired differently, who live in spaces of disembodiment or fragmented embodiment and how that impacts their self, sense of self, uh, connection to the world uh, and their connection to the people around them. So what am I reading? A million different articles. One article that I know I've been reading about the default mode network. I've been reading uh, works of Ruth Lanius and sensory processing. I know that Tracy, that you know that article too, from stuff I've been reading from you. Of course, uh, The Interoceptive Mind by Tsakiris. It's a book is another deeply informative, uh, thought-provoking text. Antonio Damasio and his thoughts on consciousness. And I'm also thinking about consciousness, mm -hmm. the self, and the vestibular system. And all of the emerging work. Uh, Jeff Blank comes to mind as an author who's really looking at how impactful and integrative the vestibular system is to the foundation of interoception. Mm. So there's lots going on in my head in this moment that is just kind of evolving uh, as I'm reading and preparing and thinking about all the things that relate to this. Was there anything that caught you by like surprise or that felt really like on the edge of something new or? You know, one thing that I was deeply grateful for, and I and please don't ask me exactly where I read I read this in this moment because I don't think I can pull that out of my brain in this second. But I have always felt like interoceptive perception didn't involve much active thought, and in the most recent review of interoception. Neurobiologically, it seems that it incorporates more cognitive awareness than I thought. And, and so I, I mean actual thought-based awareness. And that was both uh, evoked frustration, surprise, appreciation, and relief. Those emotions came up. Because for so long, I have a confession I felt quite irritated by a focus on trying to teach interoceptive perceptions cognitively as the primary point of entry and how the underbellies of sensation and the flow of sensory information was seemingly not equally as emphasized. And so as I start to appreciate the breadth of the circuitry as it's starting to become more teased out specifically, it, it really is a circular process. And, and so that made me rethink. I love it when I come up with a hypothesis and then I have to go in a different direction. It's very humbling, <laughs> uh, exciting, 
and, and also uh, dysregulating. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that is so beautiful to share that and, you know, just how it is this continual journey as the science unfolds, but also what can happen as the science unfolds. And this may reground or, or be an interesting thought, Kim, for you and I to kind of wrestle with. And as the science unfolds, sometimes new findings pull everyone's attention, like the shiny object in the room. And there's so much focus right now on the anterior parts of the insula and these higher structures that connect interoceptive processing to thought and to mind. And the kind of seeking for what is consciousness and what is mindfulness lands us in this beautiful place of understanding that interoception is sort of the mind-body connection in so very many ways. And yet that's the shiny object that catches a lot of attention. But we have to remember that interoception is also pre-perception and it's the primary fodder of neuroception. And so much of what happens in the lower parts of the insula before it becomes conscious is actually where the action happens around safety and love. And so our awareness builds on that, but it's always both. It's a both and, it's not an, an either mm -hmm. or or. And I, I just wanted to bring that out because I think it'll... Um, be important for us as we think about this work in our own clinical applications, but also in the mind-blowing way that it influences our own moving away from stress, moving back to restoration, moving through moments of dissociation that any of us may experience. So yeah, yeah, that's where, uh, that's where my mind went. Mm. You know, that term that you just used of rounding it out. When I come back to my thinking around disembodiment and my experiences clinically with children and adults who have experienced so much survival in their lives that talking about what do you feel in your body just doesn't get it doesn't create any of the sense of safety and uh, awareness. And it is so much that pre-conscious pre perception that allows the person, I think, to begin to land in their body from the place of beginning to trust again, being in my body. And... To me, this is a meeting of multiple levels of input, mm -hmm. of sensation from the body, from co-regulation and attunement, something I know that we all love in our conversation here, which I think and know is interoceptive and how interoception begins, as well as the language and meaning that we make out of what we feel, what we see. And to me, uh, the dialogue that we're having around interoception is holistic, which brings us all back to the whole brain working as, a, mm. as an integrated 
way of um, processing rather than one direction or another. Can we clearly so. distinguish interoception from neuroception? Or is it just like, is neuroception a whole bigger process, mm. like circuitry, brain, body <laughs> process um, that involves, like you said, interoception is fodder for neuroception, I think you said, Tracy. But um, I'm just, I like, I think my head's not fully wrapped around the neurological process that is neuroception. So, and I know it's really strongly based in sensation and process of sensation. And so that's not just interoception, but yeah, maybe you can, we can tease that out a little bit. Is that easy to, do we just not know? I don't know. I think we know to some levels. Go ahead, Kim. I'd love to hear your. No, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about words again. Like you always, you know, remind us that the language that we use, and I think it's important for your, thinking that we all might not share words mm -hmm. or we might share words, but this is part of what the intention of your wonderful podcast brings is a shared vocabulary. To me, neuroception is a sensing into something that is got a, a perception to it that is fed by the sensations of meaning at a very sensory based level as well as a an affective level that create the perception sort of like a raw rudimentary perception that you might call neuroception but a, a neuroceptive radar i always have a picture of a satellite dish on my slide when i'm talking about neuroception because it's like a satellite dish that is looking for tracking, uh, becoming aware of the sense of what it is that I'm experiencing in the context that I'm in. And I, I feel that Tracy elegantly said there that interoception is part of what feeds that intuition, that perception awareness. So I think they are different in my opinion, different things. Yeah, I think they are as well. So I think a couple of things, the idea of neuroception is that satellite dish. I love that. I think that using the concepts that it's this continual surveillance for the purpose of detection, for the purpose of mobilizing whatever resources are needed related back to what's surveilled and detected. So it's, it's not a single thing. It's this very complex function. And interestingly, Dr. Porges is really quite specific in saying over and over again that it really isn't perception. It's below the level of perception. And so you know, what's so tricky about sensory integrative mm. processing is that we have processes that become perception just a nanosecond later. And so it's really hard to draw the line. And it feels like in our learning, we want things to be kind of identifiable in a clear sequence. 
But what happens is that it's continual processing. So even if we could sort of say, okay, we're going to arbitrarily start here so we can say there's sort of a sequence, mm-hmm. immediately mm-hmm. it becomes non-sequential <laughs> because the feedback that happened mm-hmm. from what just happened shapes what just was received. You can and- hear the seeking of the sequence in my question. <laughs> <laughs> I could. I could hear it. Well said. Well said. Yeah. One one of the things that's been really blowing my mind lately is, and uh, Tracy and I talked about this when we were together in Colorado, was a, of the work of Lisa Feldman Barrett. And I just heard her say the other day that we never live in the present moment, that our uh, brain is always 15 milliseconds ahead of the present moment because we are a predictive brain. That circuitry of the nervous system is putting into uh, awareness a, a sense of what is happening based on what it thinks it's happening. And I think that that is like a feed forward loop. And that's part of what blows my mind with this concept of sequencing, mm-hmm. of order, is that I think it's more of a comparator or a reconciliator or a um, mm-hmm. the brain is is looking for dissonance and equanimity mm-hmm. based on what it knows and what is happening and that is so non-sequential mm-hmm. which makes this hard hard to tease it out in the way that we often think about the brain mm-hmm. yeah absolutely so that future oriented processing is also one of those things that when we work with kids either who come from experiences that end up disrupting the ability for the brain to stay in future orientation, it pulls them into this very sticky place of not being able to catch up to that. And so you see that perpetuate. We also see that in kids who have weakness in their modulation or discrimination processes. And that could get really into the weeds. So we won't go there too much, I don't think. But when we have kids that don't come from necessarily a trauma background or other disruptions to their neurobiology that we can understand externally or internally, but where it's coming more from this basic disruption in sensory integrative processes that also can cause this sort of dissonance and this inability for the comparators to make sense of what's happening. And then you get this widening disparity that is so hard to reconcile and kids get confused and lost and they can't make progress. Mm -hmm. So I love that description because it sort of applies to really the whole breadth of the clinical populations we would see for one reason Mm -hmm. or another. And it's what mm. we just experience when we attune to their felt experience that there's a mismatch happening that's so mm. massive. Can I go back to the interception, neuroception, just for a moment? I've always considered neuroception external to the world. So can neuroception be internal? So my sense of, you know, I... Um, Chrome needed updating 27 times before I logged onto the podcast. Can my sense of worry about <laughs> missing out 
that was internally driven. So my heart rate going up is that neuroception. So is neuroception applying to my internal environment or is that a little bit different? Is that more clearly interception and neuroception is the outside world? Can I, can I think about it in that or Corey and I like still wanting to box all these concepts? Oh, I just love that question. I'm going to give you it a go as to how I think about it, but we'll see if what y'all think. Um, I think about input of all kinds, whether it's I'm lying in the bed in the middle of the night at three o'clock in the morning and all of my sensory input is perfect from the perception of my, my body's state of comfort. I can be in an absolute state of chaos from what I'm thinking about and how these circuits that we talk about are loops. I think of them as loops of integrated interaction that can be entered into from any point that can influence the other aspects of the circuit. And cognition, darn it, is a really influential Mm. neurochemical feed that biases, I think, the system and changes the valence of the perception of what you're experiencing. I, I think that's a lot what we try to do with things like mindfulness, with self-reflection, is we try to take care of that piece of the circuit by managing our mind. In my experience, it's the slowest path. Most difficult path <laughs> in my personal experience. Um, but I do feel that it has a tremendous feed into the whole of the system that can influence a readiness to be more hypervigilant or more oriented. I, my sister has Crohn's disease. And the internal sensations of pain are, she would report that there's no question that that pain is influenced by thought in both a positive or a negative direction. So I I do think that's my opinion, that there is Mm. a circular aspect. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, neuroception, as is true with most sensation. It's Mm. the inside, the outside, and the in-between. Sometimes when we think about the in-between, we think about that as the in-between me and the environment, or me and you guys, or me and the folks around me, the beloveds, or the folks that I'm curious or wary about, or or whatever that might be, right? That's a landscape. But we have that actually with our own minds. So if you think about Mm. the wariness that you meet yourself or the ease with which you meet yourself, Mm. it's a state and neuroception responds to that. So yeah, for sure. Oh, this is getting deep. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I, I think trauma is a great example that if you experience, especially early developmental trauma, it implicitly and perhaps explicitly, influences how you perceive the world and can set you up 
to experience relationships and people and the environment as inherently safe or dangerous. And it's kind of like a entering into point of being that can influence and shadow all aspects of your life. So I feel that's part of the neuroceptive influences is your history lies in there in what the neuroception is going to detect. Well, I'm trying to think about where we apply this holistic approach to this concept (laughs) in the moments with the individuals Mm -hmm. that we're with. Um, Because what I'm hearing is that there's this pre perception, meaning like before my really thinking mind is even aware that something's happening, things are happening. And then there's the actual event of my brain being involved in figuring out what's going on. And I guess I'm talking about my interoceptive experience. So there's pre and then there's the brain that's involved. And then there's the, oh man, we're talking about the comparator of the brain, like the brain's expectation of what's going to happen versus what actually happens. Um, And then also like if I have disruptions in the way I process sensations internally, externally, whatever, then my, um, I guess the brain might struggle to figure out what might happen next or what happened might next might be scary. Um, I'm just trying to think like how, so I've got to keep in mind all of these pieces when I'm working with a kiddo. So I've got to think about, uh, I guess I just need to come to an example. Maybe we can piece it out. So I've got an example. Oh, go for it. Great. Great. I've got one. I was with a session yesterday. Well, I've got, I think I've got one. I was in session yesterday with gorgeous little neurodiverse kiddo, three and a half years old. He was in the ball pit. We were playing um, dinosaur games and he's starting to think about numbers. So we were counting the dinosaurs and adding a stroke to the board for, you know, number one dinosaur. So it was squishy and then he'd throw it in the ball pit. And then after we counted 13 dinosaurs, we hid them and then he had to dive in and collect them. We're improving somatosensory uh, and meeting his somatosensory needs there. Uh, he was really into the game and um, his attention can wander sometimes, but he has had multiple weeks where he's with me the entire, as long as I follow his lead and attune really well, he's with me the whole session. This session, I could tell he was really interested in the squishy rah-rahs, he calls them, the squishy dinosaur rah-rahs that we were throwing in the pit, but he kept going back to mum and he'd go back and just kind of grimace and then mum's like, what are you doing, buddy? Go get the rah-rah with Michelle. And so um, he was coming back on the third or fourth time. He was like, oh, tummy he's probably got 50 words but he came out with tummy and then um I was like oh something's happening with your tummy buddy and so he held his tummy and and then um you know we kind of soothed him and then he perked up and then went to get the rah-rahs and as he was in there he just looked up at me and mum and did this um uh, he passed a bell 
movement. And so he, and he had a condensate on, but he was like, oh, oh, poo. <laughs> Sorry for the example, but it was, <laughs> it was, um, and then, so we went back over to mom and we all kind of looked and then I tried to thread the interceptive loop because he was feeling, a, my guess is he was feeling a thing. It was pulling him out of the activity. It was pulling out of relationship with me. He was sitting on mum's lap for co-regulation from mum that was more than I could offer. Like he, so I, even though he's super invested with me, he went to her in this, mm. I guess, whatever was gurgling in his tummy or the pressure sensation, I don't really know, but he was like, oh, interrupted by something internally that pulled him out of the activity, go to his, you know, primary co-regulator mum and we, he didn't have the words or the probably the interceptive mum said later that he's never paired that together. Um, so we, I think it was a new interceptive sensation for him that we were able to put some words onto and then look, it got messy. So I think she said he'd been much quieter over the last few days. So she eventually, you know, as she was leaving, so there was a quick exit, she was like, I, I think it's a diarrhea. Anyway, it was awful experience. I, I just wonder that all this happened in this little experience that unfolded, that he became very aware, interceptively of something and he sought a co-regulator and then he went back to the activity and it kept persisting. He did have moments of what is going on. I don't think he had the words or knowing of what this sensation, what was coming up next. I don't think he knew what was coming up next and then we put it all together. Anyway, I wonder <laughs> whether in there there's a little bit of a um, – an experience of this coupling, I guess, of all the concepts that we're talking about. Interception, his perception of, I think he neurocepted, whoa, something's not right. You know, regulation, co-regulation, that forward planning of what's coming up next. I don't think he knew eventually till the stool was occurring and it was like, oh, poo. And then, you know, anyway. That's my example that happened yesterday, nearly lifetime. <laughs> cool. Great example. I wonder if somatosensory sensation pre the event, Michelle, helped him to find the language. I suspect it would have helped, like, you know, in the processing for him. Um, but also wonder, because if the neuroception piece is kind of pre-perception and he had that mobilising or the stilling and then... I'm trying to piece apart the bits of what applies where. So, like, I guess he's got that whatever the signal is internally that from his gut, whichever part of his gut that's maybe cramping or something's happening. Um, and each time he does that, he mobilises towards mum. And I don't know, it seems almost like in that um, space where it's not an intentional strategy, if that makes sense. So you know I, how we talk about like I strategies think... for regulation. It's like it just, he just did it. I thought that was a neuroception at play. Mm. I thought he was like, whoa, something's coming up and I don't have a predictive knowing of what that is. I'm just going to mum. I'm mobilising Yeah, I think I agree with you. That's how yeah, I... that's what I was thinking. Mm. But what, is that right? <laughs> Are we thinking? I want, I want to jump in and say something here about attachment because what you're describing from how you're describing it uh, speaks to secure attachment. 
that when there is a perception, a neuroception of danger or discomfort, that the approach mobilization comes only in the conditions of safety mm. with a co-regulator. Mm. If a caregiver or a co-regulator is perceived to have more danger than the danger that I'm feeling, I will not mm. approach through that nature of action in order to be able to make me out of my, mm. or have someone hold space for me. Mm. So, you know, there, there's that element in what mm. you're describing and, and what neuroscience is telling us is especially through the right orbital frontal cortex is that when I experience pain, danger, lack of safety, and I am in the presence of someone that holds space for me, I learn to hold space for myself. Mm. And through that tolerance of experiencing what I'm experiencing, that the interoceptive connection mm. grows and I develop a greater sense of connection to me, connection to my own uh, living experience every day, as well as how it balances with my emotions. Because in this conversation back to the beginning of dissociation, um, I always talk about there's a thousand faces of dissociation. It can be little shades of it. If a parent said, oh, stop, don't worry about it. Just go back to being with Michelle. Get back in that ball bath and, you know, carry on with a little bit of intent, you know, dismissive intonation in the voice. That can be a cue mm. that can disconnect into perception. So th this attachment role has a place in either, I think, in either accentuating mm. the interoceptive trust mm. or minimizing it, uh, dependent mm. on how that's received. And just on that, Kim, that there was a little bit of a flavour of that when he first came because it was less obvious. So it was a bit of a, what are you doing, buddy? Like, where you go? Back to play. So it wasn't a sharp dismissive, but it was a, I don't understand what you're doing here. Soothe, soothe, but off you go. But it did change. So he was resilient and oh, I guess what I was going to say, that he was resilient enough to go back. He probably went back two or three times and we were like, oh, what is happening? Like this is a little unusual. And so there was a real softening then to, oh, this just isn't him being distracted or getting a bit dysregulated because Michelle didn't find the rah-rah fast enough. Like a it, we both understood there's a different flavor here. And so it, we both softened in and um, yeah. Yep. So that, that kind of did happen. The two things happened. It was a smidge dismissive initially, but he was attached um, and resilient enough to go back to the person, to beautiful mum who, to try again and again to have his needs met. You know, that's the scaffolding of wonder of repair, by the way, just, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It absolutely is. It's also that in any moment of that attuned relationship, the brain and human beings 
are simultaneously processing multiple goals. We're processing, let's be regulated in our bodies so that we can be safe and explore. And I'm interested in numbers and that's so cool. And I'm interested in this play with you and these dinosaurs. And so you have all of these goals going on. And when we as observers or participants with children, we tend to assume that those lower levels of regulation are being held when Mm. there's higher levels of participation and engagement. Mm. And we focus on the game, on the higher level Mm. play, on the high capacity. So that Mm. wooing to higher level capacity is a part of our interaction. And what happens when we have a child who gets a cue from their body that something's changing physiologically, or emotionally, or their intention, or whatever is changing, it takes them a little bit of time to shift. And it takes Mm. us a little bit of time to shift. Mm. And that process toggles Mm. based on the cues. And the stronger the cues are in the kiddo, the more likely we're going to start to pick up on them. But it it Mm. often isn't in the first or second trial. And we know that, you know, that experience of kind of like, this is what I need, but I can't quite tell you why, Mm. is actually matching where his little brain was getting a cue from downstairs brain. And it was competing with what was happening in his upstairs brain. And it was starting to draw the resources away from the play Mm. and the ideas and the cognition and drawing heavier resources into, uh uh-oh, my tummy really hurts. I'm really uncomfortable here. Something's happening that I am not in volitional control over anymore. Mm. And all of that's competing with what I really want to be doing. So you see Mm. this kind of tension as the brain shifts that dissolution away from high level brain to lower Mm you know, signals, the signals get louder down here. And it says, stop paying attention to the dinosaur. Mm -hmm. So it takes a a high degree of flexibility and attunement, which is also what builds capacity anyway, Mm -hmm. through the little mismatch Mm -hmm. and the little error and the little repair Mm -hmm. that happens. So it's all such a beautiful way that this whole system interoceptively, Mm -hmm. neuroceptively is pairing to help us find what we need. You've made me think of, Kim, was that um, feed-forward component. Because he's just got this emerging interceptive skills, he's incontinent, um, so because that he hasn't paired those sensations in his bowel bladder with, oh, I know what's coming in next, that predictive component, you and I would go, oh, I gotta go, Michelle. Session's over. Like we could foresee what's happening next, and hopefully it doesn't happen in this live podcast. But it's like we would just be a. I'm done with that now, and I think I've done with Corey. Stop the conversation. I really want to do it, but I have to go. Where he didn't have the predictive element to know, so he did dance back to me multiple times. Yeah, so I was felt like I was witnessing that pairing of downstairs body cue with the cognition of poo, toilet, time to go, you know, that we don't, we're not always in, certainly in the clinic, able to experience that, particularly for the bowels and bladders as, you know, in the moment yeah. that people there. Mm-hmm. But that's why I think it was a bit um, 
backwards and forwardsy to Trace is that he didn't he hadn't got that together yet to go this equals that so we just gotta go and stop playing around with that really juicy rah-rah <laughs> game with Michelle it's the time to go signal yeah uh, it was such a good example no I just the only reason I thought maybe another example is because we've talked really strongly here I love about the bodily signals in relation to bowel and like taking care of my um, basic, like, like the need for toileting or thirst or, but I'm also wondering about the emotional um, interoceptive labeling and experiencing that we often have in our sessions. And so I was thinking of another example, I guess, to highlight maybe a more of that flavor and just a really um simple example which we I think a lot of pediatric OTs will come across just you know you have a a child sitting on a an exercise ball and maybe you move them in a certain direction and you see the a bit of a startle or the eyes of the the Mm -hmm. widening of the eye and the arms come out and um you know when there is a resilient C in that or if it's not too big a mismatched their capacity and if you're attuned you can catch it and sort of say whoa I moved you a bit fast or oh that might have been a bit a bit scary you know so you can sort of catch it and and Mm -hmm. connect the cognition to the moment yeah so I'm thinking like there's the pre-perception mobilized response and then there's me narrating and catching the processing cognitively around the experience um but then there's also if the mobilization is bigger, so say that happens, maybe they're on a swing and it, for whatever reason, the experience was not um, enjoyable or it felt scary or whatever, and they mobilize fully away, so they flee um, and hide, um, or maybe they're angry as well. So, you know, I guess it's trying to um, catch the what, where did the processing create a bump where was the bump in the processing noticing that and then also helping them with that created a certain feeling and whoa I'm really sorry that you know I went a bit fast and that was kind of scary no wonder you're a bit mad at me <laughs> is that a good example of syncing these pieces of the process together yeah I'm just wondering how we can think about it in lots of different ways I guess in treatment I feel like there's another layer Good. as I'm listening to you and it's our nonverbals, you know, um, because in that circuitry, the words are late uh, sometimes in the arrival of the sequence such that there really isn't a sequence, but <laughs> in the arrival of the integration of the information, and and the nonverbals are processed very early in the layers of the brain. And so much of how we feel felt by another mm. is through their nonverbals, through their eyes, through their voice, through their expressions, through their bodies, the tension. You know, we do so much with our hands in our work, putting our hands on kids. Um, And we communicate affect through our own bodies, touching their bodies, sitting next to them even, that those pieces of sensory data uh, contribute to the holism of the awareness of information. And this can be 
helpful or actually can make it worse. That if a child has an experience interoceptively that feels quite intense for them, if we join them in that intensity uh, for too long, then we can exaggerate their experience just in the same way that dismissing an experience can cut you off from your perception of what you're feeling. So that's where co-regulation comes back in here again. In attunement is not just what we say, but how we say it. That allows the child's integration of the experience to have a meaning that expands their resilience and their their capacity even to be comfortably uncomfortable. You moved directly into my question prior to this podcast that I brain dumped all my stuff over in the hope that I wouldn't continue to try and oh sorry <laughs> continue to try and like get my word in in this. I was like, okay, how am I going to keep myself quiet? Um, I, one of the questions was when you don't have the words, so we have kiddos that don't have the words. And then I was like, is the interoceptive capacity built through the attunement matching of the affective state, the mirroring in that, and then maybe labeling with like a a yucky or noticing that it's yucky. Well, I think that's how it happens for infants. Yeah. You know, I always think about an infant that is in their crib and they're crying and their tummy hurts or they're hungry. And, you know, imagine if I stood over the crib and just looked <laughs> in silence and the baby continued to cry versus if I say, oh, oh, and my face, you can't see my face right now, but it's matching the affect of the child so that the child's brain, not just, not just their cognition, their actual brain, the von Economo cells, which are part of the mirror neuron system actually light up like, okay, you're, you get it. We're in this together. And it's through that mirroring process, I think that the baby's circuitry starts to say, okay, what I'm experiencing has meaning to you. So it has meaning to me. Mm. And that that goes on. Actually, it goes on infinitely. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just thinking of my, my elderly mom who has dementia and, and how profound it is even now in her state of being. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's also, it's absolutely all of that. And it's also that you're continually inviting a return to safety in order for the information, the meaning to be able to take shape that creates the meaning Mm. that will stick for future orientation. The thing that's so tricky is that, you know, the valence that happens, the tipping that happens whenever you move out of comfort and you move into whatever that trigger is, however big the discomfort is. But if it's big enough to mobilize the person to move away from engagement on whatever level, what really happens then is that 
the meaning that gets laid down on top of a lack of comfort is entirely different than the meaning that gets laid down on the base of comfort. And so with babies, we really intuitively know that soothing and the cueing of our match, the cueing of our face, but it's also the total incubation of comfort. We're really offering mm. the neuroceptive cues of safety, of you you belong here, I'm here for you, things are going to be okay. And we do all of that. And then the meaning starts to take shape in a really beautiful way. I think sometimes with our older kids, we forget that we have to land it on that foundation of let's make sure you're feeling so connected to the safety that you and I can create together. And meaning comes from there. Sometimes what happens, especially I think as any of us are working to offer interoceptive awareness or whatever, that we start to focus too high in labeling and naming and bringing about awareness without remembering that you have to begin at that base. Mm. I'm so grateful for that. Thank you. I have a burning question about this over-attuning to, or not over-attuning, maybe caught up in the yeah. emotion as the co-regulator. Yeah. I don't know, but I, I have a question about um, mm. sticking too long in it with a kid. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I'm wondering about um, our autistic individuals or individuals with autism, however the name wants to fall. Um, but sometimes I notice if I overattune, it's almost like the affect or the trigger kind of re-triggers or something. Um, yeah, and I don't know. And sometimes I feel like unsure how to let them know I'm okay if you have that feeling. Um, and how do I help you get forward out of the feeling without dismissing yeah. the feeling? So I don't know. Like sometimes I'm not sure I get that balance right. Sure. Oh. I think it's yeah. also, it's one of the things that I do really feel like the, the A in the spirit model, the way that that's conceptualized is that at the foundation, you have this really basic neuroceptive valence of safety and comfort. But what we have to remember is that the top parts of the insula, the top parts of the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and other parts of our executive functioning system. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a motivational biasing system and it works off of the same valence. And one of the things that happens when you get a tip uh, in a negative direction, away from comfort, away from safety, is you, the brain starts to rapidly produce a lot of protective mm -hmm. automatic negative thoughts. Those are those ants, right? Automatic negative thoughts and those little ants and they crawl and they, they get really abundant. So what happens is then you start to see and hear negative affect. You may see and hear negative language. You may see and hear a lot of stickiness around things that are mm -hmm. coded in this space of hard and it's all just a reflection of the valence. And so it's easy for us to get hooked by those 
automatic negative thoughts too. We see the negative affect. We sometimes overly empathize with the negative. It's not that you want to dismiss it, but what you want to remember is that that's the color that's happening because the valence got tipped. So we have to return to attunement mm. and safety and mother ease and kindness and openness and compassion and allow that. And what happens mm. is the ants scatter and that it allows for the positive. You don't have to mm. soothe every thought, every worry, every memory, every anything. You just have to allow the nervous system to remember that mm. the foundation of safety is available. Mm. I want to, I'm <laughs> flapping again. I want to come underneath that a little bit and speak mm. about presence just you know never mind Corey. when i was listening to you it sounded like oh my gosh you're so mm -hmm. hard on yourself yes <laughs> like i have to get this right and, and all the good time <laughs> you know that that idea of uh responding in the best mm -hmm. way mm -hmm. i think the intention to be present, by the way, the word intention is, I'm using it very intentionally, is all about priming the, the state of the brain to be ready for something. And if I have the intention to be present, that in of itself is a feeling that I matter. And it, it in a sense cuts us some slack <laughs> yeah. as clinicians and parents, thank goodness, yeah. and grandparents, uh, that we can actually uh, be not quite perfect mm. in what we say or how we attune, but that there's a felt sense mm. of love and connection that kind of supports the holism Mm. of what's unfolding. You guys, I have a really interesting story to share that maybe you can um, help me unpack. <laughs> that was quite magical. That happened just this week. So I was at our moving to higher ground camp and there was a little guy with his therapist that was supporting him. He's about five, nonverbal, autism spectrum disorder, with big open eyes, eyebrows glued to almost the top of his forehead, bouncing around on his toes, eyes up and out, gazing at a distance, pacing constantly. You, you, I know you feel him as I speak him. And his clinician was absolutely magical in her capacity to gracefully connect and orient her body and use her voice and all the things that we try so hard to do. And all of a sudden I thought, he doesn't know, this is what happened to me. I was watching them from a distance and I thought, he doesn't know what feelings are hers or what are his. And I decided in that moment to support them by introducing the safe and sound protocol music to her. So I put the headphones on her and he stopped dead in his tracks. Feet came down. 
He oriented in her direction. He put his hands on her cheeks and he started to cry. And it was like he was looking into her soul. And then she started to cry. And her response to me was, I feel so responsible because he was feeling Mm -hmm. my sadness. And it was just a reminder of how permeable some of our kids are Mm -hmm. in their interoception disembodiment, that they actually feel things you and I are even less aware of, I think. And this, he then took her hand and dragged her over to the Lycra swing for the first time. (laughs) Cool. In his entire, you know, life of therapy. And was, it was kind of wild to watch. And and it just, I speak to it because I'm wondering if you can, if you can all comment on how you think we play into the neuroception Mm. landscape. Mm. And the interoceptive landscape mm. of our kids. That's probably why I was asking the question, because I have a kiddo at the moment that little things upset her in a big way. And I want to let her know, like, I can see you're upset, but um, we'll go when you're ready, you know. Um, and I'm trying to play around with, like, how much do I look at her directly in this process? And how much do I um, play with my tone of voice or how much do I reduce the language altogether? She's pretty nonverbal. She's 13, pretty nonverbal. We have a great time. I really, really enjoy her. And I'm just trying to figure out, like, sometimes I I feel like, oh, I'm just exacerbating it. Um, And then, and then there's like on one part of me that's wondering, like, how is it, how much of it is it me just uncomfortable with the fact that she's upset Mm. Um, and, 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 you know, obviously when she's upset, she uses all the strategies that she has, which include hitting her legs and, you know, whacking things nearby and never in an aggressive way. I just know she's just trying to manage the intensity of the experience. Mm. Um, but Tracy, your comment around that you don't need to continually attune to the, the, affective experience but just to continually offer the safety anchor Mm. um as the option and so that helps Mm. me now probably navigate that landscape kim your story is just such a powerful reminder of your comment you know the only person that you can change is yourself and so the process of coming to master what what is it about this experience that's maybe a little tricky for me or why am i thinking why why do I feel like I need to push in that direction right now? Or I guess that um, that's so true. And it's always really good to be reminded that these individuals that we're with sometimes they're susceptible to our stuff. Mm. <laughs> and I think it, at that level, like I have a similar experience to that, Kim, and I was pretty tired on a particular day last week. And mum had said, how are you going? I was like, to be honest, I'm tired. But I'd had my fine face on and I had my game. You know, I was ready to play. But um, we've known each other for years, so I was like, oh, not so fine. Like, I'm tired. But I turned up and, anyway, she left the room and her little cherub saw straight through me. He didn't hear. He wasn't in the vicinity to hear me say that. 
and my faking fine was he was all over it. Anyway, in your example, I guess, Kim, I just can see even though I think it's that that really neuroception, really base level of safety, not safe, that I didn't have to be off much and he was like, well, the landscape has changed and have you got me today, Michelle? And because it doesn't feel like you had me like you had me last week. And the truth was I didn't. And it's fascinating in your example, Kim, that in trying so hard to be so fully present and they were having an interaction, even though from an outsider, well, you saw, but he's, he looked like he may not have been attuning to her where in fact he he was possibly very neurologically like um, from that felt safety fundamental level was neurocepting I see you, I feel you, I feel you have me, even though I'm looking away, um, you know, I'm, I'm looking like I'm over here, but I know you have me over there. And when you pop the headphones on, I'm sure it feels like he perceived that and the shift in that, what that happened to her. Anyway, I, I don't have the words on the neuroscience or the whatever, but time and time again, I've felt they get that they've understood there's a shift here. Um, either way, you know, I see them shift very subtly mm-hmm. and I know they've perceived my shift subtly as well. Um, so it's this backwards and forwards piece. And, and I think that shows that it's not always us that are holding them. <laughs> you know, they're, they're perceiving <laughs> and holding us too. True. I, I love that. I think that's such a great way to end. I don't want to end this episode to be honest and I have all these questions about like resiliency and then where is the interoceptive experience in the effort when we're a little bit frustrated but you know the outcome is what we want and and how do we manage that with compliance and oh my gosh I've got 10 more episodes worth of questions but that means you just have to come back Kim (laughs) um and we can have another conversation thank you for the juicy uh, inspiration and uh, I'm carrying this with me in my heart um, and so much gratitude for the three of you. Thank you for having me today. Beautiful, Kim. Thank you. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>